Sungmin, I don't know if you remember this, but back when both of us used to work at Politico many moons ago, um, I just I remember being in a room with you in the Capitol and you were talking to someone about your like list of life goals. And really high on that list was covering a Supreme Court confirmation. And now it seems like you've done so many confirmations since then, which tells you something about what's been going on with the Supreme Court. Right, right. Well, I remember that conversation. And it's because I had been covering Congress for about, you know, maybe five or so years at that point. So I was actually really looking forward to seeing what that process was like, being a part of that history. But yes, I have covered maybe like a million by now. It's actually, this one will be the fourth one, I believe, in the last five years. So that's a lot. But it will be interesting to see if from a Democratic perspective, when it's a Democratic White House and a Senate running the show. Sungmin Kim covers the White House for The Post. And though, yes, this is the fourth Supreme Court confirmation hearing in five years, this one is different because of President Biden's promise to make history and nominate the court's first Black woman. But now we're all wondering, who's it going to be? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 11th. Today, what we know about the top possible contenders to fill Justice Stephen Breyer's Supreme Court seat. And then we will talk about the scandals and triumphs of figure skating at the Beijing Olympics. Uh, Phil and I were actually texting about it yesterday because it's, it's a fascinating story, right? That is later in the show. Stay tuned. So, Sungmin, could you tell me briefly who are considered the top contenders to fill Justice Stephen Breyer's Supreme Court seat after he retires? So the public focus has really centered on three central names, all three of them distinguished Black female jurists. So the one that gets probably talked about the most often is Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. She currently sits on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, long considered the second most influential court in the country. When you become a judge, you take an oath to look only at the law in deciding your cases, that you set aside your personal views about uh, the circumstances, the defendants, or anything else, and you, and you apply the law. Second is Leandra Kruger. What the government can't do, even in the context of that program, is attempt to suppress speech on the basis of viewpoints that it expresses. And the central. She worked in the Solicitor General's office under the Obama administration. And now she is a justice on the California Supreme Court. And the third is J. Michelle Childs. As a limited role in federal court, I would approach only cases and controversies before me. She is a federal district court judge in South Carolina. And she has gotten a significant boost because she is the favored candidate of South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn, who we know is a big Biden ally, and he has been talking her up. I don't have anything against the seven or eight names that I have seen floated uh, as possibilities. Uh, they're all great people. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, I have been discussing Michelle Childs uh, with the president and his people now uh, for, uh, I guess, uh, at least 13 months. 
The Washington Post has reported that these three women are undergoing the FBI background checks. So that is a signal that these are the people in really uh, deep consideration by the White House. And and briefly, like, what is at stake here with this decision in, in deciding between these three women? There are a lot of considerations that I imagine uh, President Biden and his senior aides are undergoing right now. A lot of it is who is the type of jurist that President Biden wants to see in this country? Biden is going to make history here by nominating the first black woman to ever sit on the Supreme Court. So you bring that element of racial and gender diversity. But the Biden administration has made it a point to bring a lot of professional diversity to the courts when they've been nominating people for the federal courts and the appellate courts. And that's why, you know, instead of looking for traditional prosecutors or whatnot, they have really looked at civil rights lawyers. They've looked at public defenders. And that's why a lot of uh, legal legal watching this process think that perhaps Katanji Brown-Jackson, who does have a history as a public defender and sat on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, does have the edge here. Um, she mm. is also a former clerk of Justice Stephen Breyer. So we can't, I have to imagine that that's Justice Breyer's favored pick. There's also multiple other considerations that the White House is considering. I'm sure they are looking at age, first of all. Um, these women are all relatively in the same kind of age range. You know, Kruger is 45, so a little bit on the younger end. Jackson is 51. Childs is 55. Just on that kind of the upper limit of what you want a Supreme Court justice who do have lifetime appointments. And I'm sure they're looking at the potential for bipartisan support. Mm. Judge Jackson, when she was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit last year, she got the votes of three Republicans, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins. Although some of them have indicated, don't take her support for Jackson as an automatic sign that that we would support her for the Supreme Court because it's a completely different playing field here. But also for Michelle Childs, Lindsey Graham has basically all but endorsed her and he is telling the White House to pick this person that he would love to make history from South Carolina too as having the first black female justice to come from South Carolina. I can't think of a better person uh, for uh, President Biden to consider for the Supreme Court than Michelle Childs. She has wide support in our state. She's considered to be a fair-minded, highly uh, gifted uh, jurist. Uh, She's one of the most decent people I've ever met. She is an awesome person. I want to go through all three of these potential nominees and talk a little bit more about who they are, what their career path was to this moment, and why they might be attractive nominees. So let's start by talking a little bit more about Katanji Brown-Jackson. Like, where is she from? What was her upbringing? Um, how did she end up becoming a judge? So she is from Miami. I am only the second generation in my family to go to any college, and I'm fairly certain that if you traced my family back past my grandparents, who were raised in Georgia, by the way, you would find that my ancestors were slaves on both sides. She has obviously had an illustrious career in legal issues. Obviously, we discussed that she is a public defender and has served on the Sentencing Commission. So she has seen firsthand just the impact of the law on people who do really need the help uh, that sometimes the legal system doesn't always afford them. I think that actually having... Uh, defender experience can help not only um, the judge, him or herself, in considering the facts and circumstances in the case, uh, but also help the system overall uh, in terms of their interactions with uh, 
defendants and the way in which they proceed in the courtroom. So she brings that kind of perspective to the court that her backers say is very valuable. Well, and I'm curious how her being a public defender is going to be seen in the nomination process. Like, will people ask questions about whether that's going to inform her approach as a judge? I think that it will come up in one of two ways for Democrats who want to promote this idea that judges should come from all sort of different professional backgrounds. This will be a boon for them that they would highlight and they would highlight some of the cases in which she's helped people. But Republicans, her opponents who are already starting to scrub into her record, I'm sure will look at some of the more um, perhaps controversial people that she's defended. And that certainly could become an issue in her confirmation hearing or an issue that um, her opponents try to bring up and use as a weapon against her. Um, In your uh, career before you were a judge, have you ever represented a terrorist at Guantanamo Bay? About 16 years ago when I was a federal public defender. I'm also curious if there are moments from her most recent confirmation hearing for her current job that can inform how she handles some of these questions about how she approaches important legal issues. I think her confirmation hearing was actually pretty seamless. There is no kind of one big moment that we can kind of look to in her confirmation process, sort of in the way that we saw with perhaps Amy Coney Barrett, now Justice, what we saw during her confirmation hearing to the appeals court uh, when her personal religion became an issue. There isn't a comparison like that for now from Katanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearings. What I think would be more interesting would be some of the actions that she's taken on the D.C. circuit as she's been there for nearly a year. And she's taken certainly a high profile role in a lot of these cases involving former President Donald Trump and his records because the D.C. circuit is the venue to hear those sorts of cases. And she's Hmm. taken pretty strong positions that, you know, the president is not a king and he doesn't have this complete authority to either control his records or to not respond to Congress and other investigations. So that is certainly going to be a distinguishing part of her record uh, should she be the nominee. Okay, so next let's talk about Leandra Kruger and her career. Why is she being considered? So she is someone who has deep experience in the law, as all of these women are. And her, in in terms of Washington, she is most known for working in the Solicitor General's office under the Obama administration. We know the Solicitor General is kind of like the representing attorney for the United States government at the Supreme Court. So it is a very high profile role that attracts the sharpest of lawyers. I've had Republicans privately tell me who know Kruger that she is actually the one that they are kind of the most scared of, (laughs) frankly, because Mm. she is... What do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean by scared? In that she is just so brilliant that it would be kind of hard to land a punch on her if they were actively Mm. trying to kill her nomination. So she really does have a stellar record in the legal community. Right now, she is on the California Supreme Court. Leandra Kruger has had this reputation of kind of a consensus builder. You know, obviously... um, 
there's politics and everything, in, you know, even on the Supreme Court, where the justices have had to kind of create coalitions and create these consensus points, even when they are dealing with very um, difficult charged issues. You know, Justice Breyer was known, even though he was reliably a liberal on the court, he himself was known as a consensus builder. And I think there is a sense that Leander Kruger is building that kind of reputation on the California Supreme Court. She's 45. That is, again, on the very young end of people who get considered for the U.S. Supreme Court. So if she doesn't get this nod now, she certainly will be considered by Biden in the future and certainly Democratic presidents in the future. The other interesting detail to know about Leander Kruger, that she was actually approached by the Biden administration twice over the last year to serve as the U.S. Solicitor General, to serve as that top Mm -hmm. lawyer, which is a political position. It is subject to Senate confirmation. And she turned them down. So when we reported that last year, it was really seen as kind of an eyebrow-raising move. Um, And we all kind of wondered, is she kind of keeping keeping her powder dry for a potential Supreme court nomination and not allowing her to get kind of sucked up in the controversial fights and the positions that you would have to defend on behalf of the Biden administration should she get that job. So that was kind of a, a big tell for us kind of watching this whole process that she she knows that she could be considered for the Supreme Court someday. And here we are. So then the the third person who we believe is in this kind of round of finalists is J. Michelle Childs. Who is she? And, and tell me more about her career. So she has served on the federal bench in South Carolina for a district court seat since 2010. She was a nominee of President Barack Obama. She was confirmed unanimously by the Senate, as was kind of the practice back then before the judicial wars really um, got so much more partisan and toxic here in Washington, but she is very, very well known in the South Carolina legal community and is beloved by the South Carolina legal community among Republicans and Democrats. I've talked with people who have um, argued cases in front of her. They just call her eminently fair, really just devoted to the law, does not see politics in any sort of sense. And her most uh, distinguishing quality is that she has a very powerful political patron in uh, James Clyburn, the South Carolina congressman, the third ranking member of the House of Representatives, and such an influential person in South Carolina politics who's been credited for almost single-handedly resuscitating then-candidate Joe Biden's presidential campaign back in 2020. We know that uh, Joe Biden did not do well in the first nominating contest in Iowa and New Hampshire, but when he hit South Carolina and he got uh, James Clyburn's endorsement, that basically turned around his entire campaign. And part of what we found out later, part of President Biden getting Clyburn's endorsement was that pledge that has become a guiding Mm -hmm. force for the White House Um, and President Biden now, that he would nominate the first Black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. That was primarily a Clyburn doing. And and so is there a sense that there is some indebtedness from Biden of, you know, not only did I make this promise, but also that who Clyburn wants to see in this role is something that I should consider seriously? I think there is that sense, but it could also go the other way. I think there is also a sense that the White House and President Biden doesn't want this 
necessarily to be dictated solely by James Clyburn. You know, James Clyburn is not the president of the United States. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. And what's been remarkable to see over the last couple of weeks since Justice Breyer announced his retirement is that um, James Clyburn has been on a pretty um, blatant one-man whipping operation on behalf of Michelle Childs. Obviously, he had told the White House um, even far as back as the transition that it should there be a Supreme Court vacancy that this would be, this should be the person that the president should consider. He has told uh, members of Biden's inner circle. What is it? What has he been saying about Childs? Like, why is he so passionate on her behalf? In terms of educational diversity, there is not a lot of it on the U.S. Supreme Court. Every justice except for one has a degree from Harvard or Yale. The only one who does not is Amy Coney Barrett, who has a degree from the University of Notre Dame. And um, Michelle Childs is a product of state schools. And in terms of her education, she just has such a different background and worldview. And um, her supporters, um, and Clyburn has made this point, and Lindsey Graham has even also made this point, that they say for students who go to and graduate from a state school, a public university, that this is an inspiration to have someone on the Supreme Court who has a similar educational background, who didn't go to those Ivy League schools, that they too can work hard and be on the Supreme Court someday. It's not often heard it said uh, that um, even the risk of creating an elite society, look, we've got to uh, recognize uh, that people uh, come from all walks of life, have all kinds of backgrounds and experiences, and we ought not dismiss anybody because of that. So that's one of their biggest selling points. And that could be really appealing to Joe Biden, who is also a state school alumni. You know, he did not go to Harvard or Yale, much like these other contenders. So that's kind of um, beyond her reputation in South Carolina. That's been one of the biggest selling points that her supporters have made uh, to the public and to the White House. What are some of the pitfalls or drawbacks that are coming up about these candidates, the thing that could make their nomination process, if they are nominated, a lot more difficult? So the biggest um, concerns that have been brought up among the Democratic groups, the Democratic constituencies, is actually with Michelle Childs, who on the surface seems like the person with the most potential for bipartisan support. And it's actually come from the labor community. You know, my colleague Jeff Stein and I have recently interviewed uh, labor leaders, prominent labor union lawyers, and the leaders of unions here in Washington. And they've talked about their concerns with Michelle Childs. And they point to her background. She was a partner at a corporate law firm in Columbia, South Carolina, and much of her work at that law firm was defending actually employers against, for example, unionization practices and efforts by workers. So she kind of took the business side when when so much of the focus of this Democratic Party has been really on the pro-worker side and not necessarily pro-employer. Now, her supporters say that is an unfair charge. Obviously, when you work at a place like a law firm, you don't always choose your clients. And a job of a lawyer is to defend your clients and represent your clients, um, whoever they are, in the most fair way possible. 
Congressman Clyburn has also pointed to her work on the Worker Employee Compensation Commission in South Carolina as a sign that she is eminently pro-worker. But these labor groups and these labor officials are pointing to Joe Biden's pledge to be the most pro-union, pro-worker president in history. And they say that nominating Michelle Childs would not be part of that pledge. How do you think race is going to play a role in this confirmation process and the questions that are going to be asked of whoever is the nominee? Well, it certainly is an inescapable uh, factor of this whole process because of the history that Joe Biden is making here. But as an issue, um, as for questions that the eventual nominee uh, will get asked, certainly they will have to be careful in the ways that they discuss being influenced by their own personal backgrounds, their own personal um, views when it comes to applying the law. And I think you saw the careful way that Judge Jackson handled this in her uh, confirmation hearing to the D.C. Circuit where this did come out. I don't think that race plays a role in the kind of judge that I have been and that I would be uh, in the way that you ask that question. I'm doing a certain thing when I get my cases. I'm looking at the, the, the arguments, the facts, and the law. I'm methodically and intentionally setting aside personal views, uh, any other inappropriate considerations. And I would think that um, race would be the kind of thing that would be inappropriate to inject in my evaluation of a case. The Republican Party writ large has kind of struggled to deal with this issue of knowing that President Biden will nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. You know, several senators, several Republican senators have said, I am fine with that pledge. I would be proud to be able to vote for the first black woman to the Supreme Court if she meets what my standards of what a Supreme Court justice would be. But at the same time, there are many other Republican senators who are saying, this is effectively affirmative action. You're discriminating against, for example, uh, you know, whites who may be qualified for this position. And that's something that um, the White House and Democrats have pushed back on furiously, pointing out the fact that there has been no black woman ever on the Supreme Court. That is in its own form, you know, a type of uh, discrimination, a type of bias that they are trying to get rid of with his historic nominee. After a nominee is finally announced by the president, what's going to happen from there? Like, is this expected to be smooth sailing with Democrats just lining up behind and say, we're all going to just vote for this person and uh, get her onto the Supreme Court as quickly as possible? Or are there expected hiccups along the way? That's certainly the hope of the Democrats. Um, but I think the issues that Democrats are the most worried about are some of the issues that are the most out of their control. And I say that because this... I believe is likely the first time ever in the history of the country that a 50-50 Senate is taking up consideration of a Supreme Court nominee, which is, you know, arguably the most important nomination that the United States Senate can pick up. 
And we've seen just so often just how even temporary illnesses or temporary COVID diagnoses can take a key vote out of the Senate for several days. So I think that is actually what's the most concerning for Democrats right now. That's kind of what the Democrats are the most worried about, these health issues, these act of God issues that they don't have any control over. So that's why they want to afford this nominee, this historic nominee, a fair and rigorous process um, that she deserves. But at the same time, they want to move quickly because as, uh, for example, Dick Durbin has always told us for the last year, we are just one heartbeat away from losing the majority. Sungmin Kim covers the White House for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. After the break, a conversation about figure skating with some unlikely guests. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing about figure skating from our executive producer, Maggie Penman. Let's start with having you both introduce yourselves. I'm Philip Rucker, deputy national editor at The Washington Post. Yes, that is right. The same Phil Rucker, who is a former White House bureau chief who covered the biggest news of the Trump administration. And I'm Robert Samuels. I'm a national political enterprise reporter at The Post. Robert roves the country covering the most heartbreaking stories about people and politics. But today, Phil and Robert are here to talk about figure skating. There is a lot going on with figure skating at the Olympics right now. This really exciting men's figure skating champion from the U.S., this possible doping scandal with the best female skater right now who's from Russia. And this feels like a big moment for this sport that has always brought Robert and Phil a lot of joy. It started with this really strange obsession when I was a child that I had with Christy Yamaguchi. I love the speed of it, the spontaneity of it. And I also love the drama that no matter what happens, you had these athletes who are on this thin sheet of ice with these thin blades and any mistake they made could be catastrophic. And it just sort of keeps me at the edge of my seat. One fun fact that I need to share here is that both Maggie and Phil are actually former competitive figure skaters. 
I just love skating. When I was a child, I trained as a competitive figure skater and it was the highlight of my day every day to be out on the ice, the feeling of the wind against your face as you're rounding the corner and taking flight and and spinning. And I also love the marriage of the athleticism with the artistry, you know, the interpretation of music and the ability to express yourself uh, on the ice. And of course, I don't skate anymore. I, I express myself through the written word now uh, but I love watching skating and, uh, and and keeping up with these athletes who are just doing incredible things athletically. We're recording this Thursday afternoon. I'm still smiling from watching Nathan Chen and his remarkable performance. I mean, truly, I never imagined I'd be able to make it this far in my career and be able to go to two Olympics. And then, of course, having the opportunity that I had today, um, it really means the world. Um, and I still, of course, have, have to take a little bit more time to process process everything. What were your reactions to watching his program? It was, in a word, simply thrilling. Uh, men's figure skating, it's an incredibly competitive sport. And to see someone who has been just so good throughout the past four years between the 2018 and 2022 games uh, performed so well at the most important competition of his lifetime. It was both a relief, like this calming relief, because he's been skating so consistently throughout the past four years, but it was also a thrill because the quadruple jumps were explosive and interesting. He was so nonchalant and having fun. And if you're a figure skating fan, you often associate yourselves with disappointment. The person who you think will win and take the title sometimes will not. They'll have a catastrophic performance at the Olympics. And so it was so exciting to see him do that. Like, I could not go to bed. I was so thrilled. Like, And what made it so incredible is Nathan Chen didn't just win by a hair. He won by a mile. He killed the field. Uh, and it was a really decisive victory. And we're not used to seeing that at the Olympic level in figure skating. A lot of these gold medals are determined by a judge just pushing somebody a little bit over the top. They're, they're very narrow margins usually. And to see Nathan Chen just so thoroughly dominate uh, the competition, uh, it was really something special and I think a performance that will hold up through history. Yeah, absolutely. It was so fun to watch. And as you as you both mentioned, like he seemed to be having so much fun while he was skating. And I think that's part of what is so fun about watching him is is that joy and that nonchalance. Even if he made a mistake, he would kind of laugh it off and and shrug it off and like just continue to have a great time. And I I think it was interesting watching some of the other skaters clearly were shaken if if they had an error and and had trouble recovering from it. And I think part of what's so fun to watch about Nathan Chen is like, you get this feeling that no matter what happens, he's going to have fun. Well, that's the confidence of assurance of knowing for certain you're the best in the world, right? I mean, no one's been able to really touch him for the past four years. He's only lost one competition. I think that ultimately when you are performing, you have to put yourself aside and become the character as pretentious as that kind of sounds. Um, you just have to you know, make sure that you understand the story of who you're portraying and also um, just allow yourself to just completely be encompassed by the music and you know, forget about how tired you are, forget about how, all the other little you know, variables. 
The other really impressive thing about Nathan Chen that we haven't really discussed is that, you know, he's a college student at Yale and he's been getting coaching pre-pandemic via FaceTime from his coach in California more than a thousand miles away. And I think that really speaks to his fortitude and something really special about him. Mm, Yeah. So, Phil, I want to ask you as a former figure skater, what do you look for when you're watching figure skating? There are the things that you can see plainly as you're watching, right? Does the skater skate with speed? Are the jumps big? Are they high? Do they spin fast? Are the landings clean? So when your blade hits the ice after a jump, do you see snow fly up in the air? Or is it like a clean, smooth edge where the skater has confidence and balance and poise coming out of a jump? You also have to look at the choreography. Is this a skater who knows how to move his or her body to the music? I mean, are are, are the dance steps intricate? Are the toes pointed the way they should be? Uh, is, is the skater's back straight? Nathan Chen, of course, has all of those elements. But there's another thing as a former skater that I look for that you don't necessarily see as a viewer, but you can kind of detect if you pay close enough attention. And that's the mental toughness and fortitude. Like skating is more than an athletic sport. It's more than artistry. There's such an important mental component because some of the best skaters in the world never end up winning gold medals because they don't keep it together under the stress of competition. They make mistakes. They get nervous. They can't handle that pressure, that Olympic pressure. And Nathan Chen over the years has had just incredible rigor uh, mentally in terms of being prepared through his training, but also being prepared in his mindset and the way he approaches these moments and the way he deals with pressure. Uh, and that's one of the, the attributes that really makes a champion. One thing that happened on Wednesday, as well as this extraordinary performance from Nathan Chen, was the news that a medal ceremony was being delayed for another figure skating event because there was a Russian skater who was found to have a banned substance um, in her body at the time of the competition. Robert, Phil, I don't know if you've been following this closely, but um, what, what do you make of that and what are you looking for as that story keeps unfolding? Uh, Phil and I were actually texting about it yesterday because it's it's a fascinating story, right? And this is not just any Russian figure skater, right? This is the best woman's figure skater in the world, or so she's believed to be, Camilla uh, Valieva. In the team competition, she set the world on fire. She was so good, so technically strong, seemingly so mentally strong. And so this idea that uh, Valieva, who's only 15 years old, could have been doping, will have huge reverberations. I mean, the first one is what happens to the gold medal that she was central to helping the Russian Olympic Committee win, right? If they strip that gold medal and everyone gets bumped up, that means the United States gets a gold medal in team figure skating, which is something no one would have ever thought would happen at these Olympics. The second lingering question is what happens to Valieva in the individual competition. Now, what we know about the Russian women's figure skating program is that it's incredibly strong and they came in with three women, not just one, three, who could contend for the gold medal and who actually jump harder jumps than what we saw Valieva do. The other skaters do more impossible things. So without Valieva, if she gets disqualified or banned from the competition, what that 
does is it creates this new exciting round for the bronze medal because it was presumed that the three Russians would come in for second and third. And that opening could yield an even more competitive and more theatrical and dramatic women's competition. And I would just add one other question I have, and I I bet Robert does too, because we both are investigative journalists by nature. I want to know more about the training camp that Kamiya Vaeva came from. She and the other two Russian women on the team all train under the same coaches led by a woman named Ateri Tutberitse in Moscow. And for the last decade, uh, Ateri Tutberitse has been the lead coach of Russian uh, women skaters. And and we say women because that's the division, but these are girls. Uh, they're teenagers. Uh, some of them are younger than teenagers. And these girls have done... Uh, incredible feats athletically uh, doing, you know, the hardest triple jumps and and even some quadruple jumps. Uh, But there's been a lot of chatter in the skating world about what kind of pressure they're under by their coach back home, the degree to which they, some of them might have some eating disorders. I know a few of them in years past have spoken publicly about their eating disorders. And it just sort of begs the question of what kind of environment uh, has Kamiya Vaeva been training in these last few months leading up to the Olympics? And was there any pressure from her coaching team uh, on this 15-year-old as she headed into the Beijing Games? Yeah, I'm so glad you both mentioned her age as well, because I think that's one thing I was really struck by too, is just how young a lot of these girls are. And when you think about the the mental fortitude that's required for this sport, it, it's just extraordinary to see these teenagers competing at that level. So as you watch next week, the women's event, um, what's going on with Valieva, uh, what else are you watching for in, in the coming week as figure skating events continue? Well, there are a few really interesting storylines. And I think the first one after the men's competition has to do with ice dancing. Now, I know for people who watch the sport uh, every four years, ice dancing kind of seems a little bit juniorish because there are no big jumps or compelling lifts like you'll see later in the Paris competition. But uh, ice dancing, it, you know, it's a incredibly difficult, very precise discipline. And it's been uh, the best ice dancers have been a team from France, Gabrielle Papadakis and Guillaume Ciceron. And back to the Russians, uh, <laughs> there's been quite the interesting campaign by some Russian figure skating officials and influencers in Russian to start docking marks from the French team because Guillaume Ciceron's gay. And there's this feeling that they're trying to imbue that uh, the couple cannot mimic the romance that's typically associated with Ice Dancer in large part because of Guillaume Cicerone's sexual orientation. Now, anyone who watches the sport can tell you that uh, Cicerone is one of the best Ice Dancers in the world. And then you'll have a very exciting uh, showdown in the Paris competition as well uh, between the hometown favorites, uh, Sui and Han, who are from China and have been uh, veterans of the sport but have never won the Olympic gold medal as they face a very dramatic uh, Russian team in Machina and Galyamov, and no one really knows how that's going to shake out. So you have two really exciting competitions coming up. 
Robert Samuels is a national political enterprise reporter. Maggie Penman is the executive producer of Post Reports. Phil Rucker is the deputy national editor. Robert has actually been writing for The Post about figure skating during these Olympics. And he has got this fascinating deep dive into skating's hardest jump, the quadruple axle. You should definitely check out that story. We're going to link to it in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Ariel Plotnik and mixed by Sean Carter. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Ray Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.